Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, December 5th, 2014. exactly a themed episode today. It's a tough time of the year to actually pull the themes together. Summertime is harder, but you know, things are kind of sparse at the moment as we're gearing up for the Christmas season. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and actually see if what people are saying in the name of God actually squares with what God's Word says when we read it in context, when we apply sound biblical hermeneutics, you know, exegete the passages correctly. And so much of what's being passed off as Christianity today, well, it isn't Christianity at all. It's something completely different. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to, you know, it's going to be all over the map. This is not a themed episode. In hour number one, we are going to begin with, um, every year I talk about the war on Christmas. And it is just a miserable thing for Christians to even be involved in. I mean, if you really kind of want to understand what my beef is, it's I don't think Christians have a right to complain about the fact that the lady at Walmart said happy holidays as opposed to Merry Christmas, um, you know, and, and go out there and slogan and campaign for let's put Christ back into Christmas. When uh, this ep- when well, not this episode, this program fighting for the faith year after year after year after year, we document the problem is not that there's the Christ isn't in Christmas. The problem is, is that Christ isn't in the Christian church. You know, people have basically have hogtied him, thrown him in a bag, and put him in the river next to their church, but they will not preach him. Uh, it's it's the weirdest thing. Christ rarely gets preached in uh, churches that call themselves Christian nowadays, and that's the problem. So if you want to uh, deal with the, uh, the, the so-called war on Christmas, it actually begins in the Christian church. And in order for the right things to happen... That means getting rid of, um, you know, a lot of pastors who won't preach Jesus. But everyone else seems to think that the problem is somebody else's pastor rather than theirs, when oftentimes it really is their pastor. He's not preaching Christ. He's not rightly handling God's word. 
he's compromised with the culture and is you know basically scratching itching ears and uh, and what needs to happen is is that he needs to be gone and you're thinking well we don't have any authority in our churches anymore to get rid of pastors because the way they've set it up is there's no voters assemblies and stuff like that it's real simple you vote with your feet in your pocketbook don't support these churches don't go to their don't go to them don't give them money these seeker driven you know, mega churches are, you know, just it takes a huge amount of money to keep them, the, those enterprises afloat. And uh, the simple way to get rid of them is to stop paying the pastors, stop putting money in the bucket and uh, stop, you know, don't give them any money at all. And they'll go away tomorrow. I mean, I mean, it's, it's if, you know, everybody in these secret driven churches say, you know, listen, you don't get a single cent from us until you stop this nonsense and you actually preach Jesus. Um, you know, it wouldn't take very long at all for them to get the message and turn things around. But uh, yeah, you, you know, you you know, just because you don't have you know the ability to vote in a voters' assembly doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to make change. It's real simple. You convince enough people that what the pastor's doing is sinful and wrong, and you stop supporting him. And uh, those churches will fold. It's it's just that simple. They are just a wash in debt. But uh, and if you don't believe me, just look at what happened with uh, Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. I mean, that's the perfect example of of you know he lost he lost people's trust. He refused to repent, refused to do the right thing, and people voted with their feet and with their pocketbooks. And uh, Mars Hill is not a thoroughgoing enterprise anymore. It's uh, you know it's it's been chopped up into little tiny little pieces all of the remaining congregations that wanted to stay congregations are changing their names and yeah the whole thing you know and driscoll isn't there anymore yeah so it is possible to affect change uh in such a way as to uh you know to, to you get rid of these guys but that takes a concerted effort and to demonstrate that the, that these people are sinful they refuse to preach the truth. They're scratching, itching ears. They're sending people to hell. They're not doing the right thing. And so I, you know, it always frosts my cookies. You know, every year, you know, I'm, you know as we're getting ready to go into thank, into Thanksgiving here in the United States, that you know, it, it makes the headlines on Fox News and Bill O'Reilly talks about it every year. You know, it's the war on Christmas, hogwash. It's the war on Christ, and the war on Christ is being waged not at your retail stores. The war on Christ is being waged in the Christian church. And uh, you know, Christ, you know, is not welcome. His message, the you know, the preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, is not welcome in many places that call themselves Christian churches. So, you know, kind of give you an idea of where we're going to go with this. But what we're going to do today is uh, in our um, war on Christmas update. This will be our one and only time we do it this year. Um, you know, we will take a look at the American Family Association. Look at their. Uh, they're naughty and nice uh, 2014 retailer list and see that they're uh, calling for a boycott of a particular retail store. And uh, and then what I'm going to do is play for you audio from um, the October 16th, 2014 episode of the American Family Association's radio program and uh, show you that uh, the, the, the problem isn't that there's retailers waging a war on Christmas. The problem is, is the American Family Association, by by promoting a heretic, is actually waging war against Christ themselves. So I think it's worth passing that along. And then we'll switch gears, and uh, we have a David Crank update, although it's kind of like a David Crank, Joel Osteen update. Yeah, uh, David Crank and uh, David and Nicole Crank, sorry. They interviewed Joel Osteen for a recent sermon that they played at their church. So we'll play part of that for you. 
And then we'll take a break, and then second half of the uh, first hour, we're going uh, to spend a little bit of time, a little kind of a longer segment, uh, listening to um, one of the most recent sermons delivered by a potential church, and uh, and listen to uh, basically narcissistic eisegesis. It's the name of the sermon series, by the way, from Potential Church, and it's Troy Gramling there. The name of the sermon series is The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, Troy, one of the, another one of these guys who, you know, scratches itching ears. And uh, it's fascinating, you know, how he leads off the sermon. We're not going to review the whole thing, but you can see where the launching off point is from personal life experience and the problem, you know, it's like, oh, you know, the holidays can be a difficult time for you. Well, well, you know what? The holidays were difficult for a, a certain Bible character as well. And so that that's kind of the setup, and we'll go from there. And then in hour number two, we always end uh, off the week on Friday with a good sermon. We have a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon. And it's entitled The Wrath of God. This was a uh, listener request that we uh, cover this sermon. We, uh, from time to time, play Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, sermons, as, sermons as we play his sermons here at uh, Fighting for the Faith, and we're going to end the week off. And this one is from the book of Acts, chapter 8. And uh, I, after listening to it, you know, I think the sermon is uh, somewhat um, mislabeled. And the reason I say that is because Martin Lloyd-Jones spends a large portion of the sermon preaching the gospel, preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. But he does so in a way in light of the real danger that we face as human beings, and that's the wrath of God, eternity in hell. And so, I mean, it's, and it's just so excellently done. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, I mean, provides what I would consider just a stark comparison, you know, something to contrast you know, the pablum that we're getting from so many pulpits today. So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since we're doing a War on Christmas update, that requires us to play our War on Christmas update music. Here we go. It's the most of that. That's just utter mayhem. You you get the point. You get the point. So the American Family Association, and you can find their uh, website at afa.net, afa.net. Every year they put out their uh, naughty or nice list, and this year they've got the naughty and nice list. And uh, the idea is, is that they want to get Christians to take action, take action against retailers because of the war on Christmas. And so this year, they're actually calling for a Christmas boycott boycott of PetSmart. PetSmart. You know, and on the list, you know, of nice, nice uh, retailers, you know, you've got like Amazon.com, Bass Pro Shops, Cabela's, you know, uh, the Dewitt Center, Kmart, and LLB, and, and Macy's and Kohl's. And these are all on the good list. Walmart's on the nice list, too. Uh, but on the naughty list, the naughty list this year, the, these are the evil, 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 evil. 
uh, you know, stores. They are the Office Depot, Office Max, PetSmart, Staples, Super Value, Barnes & Noble, Family Dollar, Foot Locker, The Limited, Maurice's, and Victoria's Secret. Yeah, yeah, you you can't. If you're a Christian, you've got you got to send a message to those retailers and let them know that you're not going to put up with them taking Christ out of Christmas and them being humbugs and things like that. Yeah, see again, the issue here is that it is not the job of secular retailers to preach the gospel. It's not the job of the cashier at Walmart to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins. It's not the job of the la- of the the gal working behind the check checkout stand at PetSmart. It's not her job to proclaim to the world that Christ is born. That job falls to you as a Christian. If you're a Christian, it's your responsibility to preach Christ. It's your responsibility to let the world know that their savior was born on Christmas morning. That's your job, your responsibility. And so it's not real persecution, by the way. It is not real Christian persecution at all when a, um, when a secular retailer, you know, when you go to their establishment and you purchase something and you go through the checkout line and then the lady there says, happy holidays. That is not the equivalent of Christian persecution. You know, over this past year, I've seen... I've actually seen many of the photos coming out of the Middle East and what ISIS has been doing to Christians. Okay? We're talking about people being killed and murdered in horrendous, horrific ways because they wouldn't renounce their faith in Christ. I read a story the other day of children who were beheaded. No, we're not talking adults here children who were beheaded because they wouldn't renounce their faith in Christ. And their simple response to these Muslims was that we love Jesus. That was their only response. Last words they said before they were beheaded by ISIS. And so, you know, here in the United States of America, apparently Christians consider it to be persecution when, you know, when they hear the words, um, you know, happy holidays or, uh, a retailer hasn't uh, decked out their halls with enough, you know, Christmas holly, you know. So that now we have to put the naughty nice list together, and, and these are the ones we Christians we will go shopping at. That's just nonsense. It's absolutely 180 degrees backwards and wrong. This is, you know, the, the Christians are not called to wage war against retailers. Whose job it is not to preach the gospel. It's our job to preach the gospel. You know, we're not supposed to fault them for not doing our jobs for us. You kind of get the point there. But uh, to kind of further make the point, I'm going to play for you audio from the American Family Association radio program from October 16th of this year. And they are interviewing Bill Johnson of Bethel, the heretic. Okay. So basically, you know, I think we need to boycott the American Family Association because it's clear by promoting a heretic like Bill Johnson that they're waging a war against Christianity and against Christ. Here's the audio from that radio segment. Uh, Bill Johnson on the line. He's the senior pastor of Bethel Church in Redding, California, and the author of a new book called Experience the Impossible, Simple Ways to Unleash Heaven's Power on earth. Bill, welcome to today's issues. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 
You know, I love your book. Uh, you, you, you pick it up and open it. and uh, Yeah, this is Ray Pritchard of um, American Family Association. It's, it's simple to read in that it's oh, built around faith and hope and love. Let me ask you this. No, it's based around false doctrine, false signs and wonders, and a false pneumatology. We we got a lot of people out there listening to us, Bill, as you know, who who feel like they're in impossible situations personally with a loved one, health wise, money wise. They feel they're up against it. Is there really a way to experience miracles in the world today? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I I just can't be. I, I can't afford to be more impressed with the size of a problem than I am with the size of God's promise. Staying conscious of, of, of who he is, his history of invading impossible situations throughout all history, uh, keeping that in, at the forefront of my thinking, my focus, my prayerful meditation, that just keeps you in a place to be on offense when you address a problem instead of on defense begging you know, for, uh, for to be rescued. It's just a different approach to life. Yeah, apparently, you know, there's steps that you can take in order to, you know, to basically make miracles happen in your everyday life. Yeah, the Bible says that nowhere, nowhere. Bill Johnson is a false prophet, a false teacher, and somebody who teaches, you know, a, a version of Christianity that isn't even Christianity. He's a heretic. And the fact that the American Family Association would promote Bill Johnson's book while, you know, turning around and having their naughty and nice list against all oh, those retailers who say happy holidays. Yeah, it, I, I don't think those retailers are actually waging a war against Christmas or Christ or Christianity at all. But by the fact that they show no discernment whatsoever and are promoting Bill Johnson's heresies, well, it's clear to me that what they're really doing is waging war against Christ and Christianity. It's weird how that happens, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm a little bit incensed about it because I, it's absolutely irresponsible for, of them to do such a thing. All right, moving along. Time for a David Crank update. off the music here. That's Gary Wright and Dreamweaver. That's our um, David Crank update music. So what we're going to be listening to here, let me set this up. Um, well, <clears throat> David and Nicole Crank, they're really good friends with Joel and Victoria Osteen. And you'll notice that Joel doesn't have this tendency to go and visit other people's churches and do sermons for them. Well, he doesn't do that, but he uh, made an exception of sorts and uh, allowed David and Nicole to come to Lakewood. And uh, while they were at Lakewood, they interviewed Joel Osteen and um, caught it all on camera and then used that for their sermon. Yeah, this past Sunday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So without any further ado, here's uh, David and Nicole Crank and Joel Osteen. Here we go. 
Faith Church, I am so excited about the sermon today because I have some really cool people. Number one, my wife. Notice how I put her first. Number two, one of my great friends, Joel Osteen. I know you guys at Faith Church and our campus in Palm Beach. And and then everybody watching on television know and love Joel. I mean, we've been all over the country uh, together. And I mean, walking down the halls of Congress, people are stopping him, wanting pictures. I'm like, that's he's bigger than you are. I think he might be more popular than the president. Oh, no. Hey, man, it's great to be with you guys. Thanks for coming down and spending a little time with us. We love Faith Church. We love all of you. And just, uh, you got some great leaders. I know I don't have to tell you that. Yeah, great leaders. Yeah, great leaders who can't rightly handle the biblical text. Uh, you're, You're plugged in at a good place. And I always think of that scripture. It says, when you're planted in the house of the Lord, you will flourish. So you guys are planted at a great place. So. Yeah, in order for them to be planted in the house of the Lord, you know, at least as far as this being a Christian church, they would actually need to rightly handle God's word, teach sound doctrine, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and proclaim Christ and him crucified, you know, the historic Christian faith. They don't seem to do that there at Faith Church St. Louis. They teach the word of faith there. You know, come to think of it, Joel, so do you. Um, Weird. Stay plugged in. That's good. You know, Joel, for years and years and years, Now, Nicole and I have been walking through Lakewood with you and Victoria and seeing the lives that are changed. And and you're just this eternal optimist, just optimistic. And it works because it's faith. You know, the Bible said faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I've noticed at Lakewood and... Yeah, Yeah. how much of the word of God do they hear at Lakewood? Because every time they open up their Bible, they hold up and say, this is my Bible. Uh, Today I'll be taught the word of God. And... We demonstrated week after week after week after week here at Fighting for the Faith. They're not being taught the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the, he said, Word of God. Another, uh, you know, other manuscripts say Word of Christ. But they don't teach the Word of God or Word of Christ there at uh, Lakewood, you know. Faith Church, the, the more people hear the Word, the more the possibilities begin to arise in your life. Because you're not looking for something. Yeah, that assumes they're hearing. The, they're not hearing the word at Lakewood or at Faith Church. Had to happen. You're looking for something good to happen, and you know I want Nicole to chime in and talk about this as well. But you got this new book, and every year in our iConnect groups and at our church, you know when you come out with this new book, we're always like, let's get into it because it makes your life better. And this new one is called "You Can and You Will." Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know what, David? There, there are eight principles. I called it to. So for the sermon at Faith Church St. Louis, they're interviewing Joel Osteen to talk about Joel Osteen's book. Not a book of the Bible, Joel Osteen's book. Would you exegete your book for us, Joel, because you never exegete God's Word. Why don't you show us how good exegesis works when you're you know, teaching your own book? I'm a winner. I call them undeniable principles, but it's things that I've seen work in my own life. It's stuff just like you were talking about, having a positive vision and, uh, you know, expecting good things and being a person of excellence. So I felt like these are some of the core, you know, principles that can help you become all you were created to be. And that's what I love about you guys. You guys, you're, you're full of vision and you know, so many times life tries to push us down. We get stuck in a rut. And think, well, I'm not going to rise any higher. I can't overcome this addiction. Or I'll never meet the right person. But I've learned God meets us at the level of our expectations. So if you expect little and you don't expect anything good to happen this year, then you know what? That's probably what you'll get. But I love what you guys believe. And what we believe is when you take the limits off of God, 
You don't know where God's going to take him. Here was How do you put limits on an omnipotent God? That doesn't make any sense. In this basketball arena right now where I used to watch the Rockets play basketball over there, and never in my wildest dreams did I believe I'd be a minister or I would even write books or be in this place, but that's, that's God's dream for our life. It's bigger than our own, so... We just encourage people to, to take the limits off. I mean, God's already put in everything. Yeah, where in the Bible does it say we put limits on God? I'd like to see that passage. ...that we need. I mean, we're equipped, we're empowered, we have gifts, we have talents. Now it's up to us to bring it out. Totally. You know, as I read the book, Joel, your books are some of my favorite books, and I can't read your books fast because they speak so much to me. So much yeah, because Joel Osteen books, they're just so chock full of meaty content. That's when you were in that for a year. Oh, forever. I mean, we started and ended iConnect groups and started whole new rounds just because it took me so long to read it. And I would mine so much out of it. I have to read it with a pen and a highlighter and then colors as well. And as I was reading You Can, You Will, it seemed like maybe you revealed something that maybe I hadn't seen um, from you before is... That maybe at one point in your life, because everybody views you as such an encourager, such a cheerleader, such a giver of hope, did you have these own negative voices in your head? Because I can't imagine it. But at one point, did you ever have these negative voices and overcome it? I really did. And it was mainly, Nicole, when I stepped up to pastor the church. Uh, You know, when my dad passed away in 1999, I knew I was supposed to do it. But every voice told me, Joel, you're not a minister. You're too quiet. You haven't been to seminary. All these voices, I mean, it just it wasn't just, you know, a day or two. It's just... You don't know how to rightly handle God's Word. You're a Bible twister. You believe the Word of Faith heresy. Those kind of voices? Really bombarding me, but, you know, I had to do what I asked people to do. you got to reprogram your thinking, you know, with what God says about you. I can do all things through Christ. I'm strong in the Lord. I'm equipped and empowered. And, you know, I've learned, I think I got this from you. If you don't talk to yourself... You know, negative voices will talk to you. You can talk yourself out of it, something like that. And so, you know, I think they, I, I'm naturally more optimistic. I mean, this is just my personality. But I think we all have to deal with those voices that try to push us down and say, well, yeah, great, Joel, that'll work for you. You come from a good family or you, I don't have that going for me. But you know what? None, we're, none of us, where we are is not a surprise to God. You know, God's got you in the palm of his hand. If you will believe all things are possible, if you'll take the limits off of God and really take what, you, what God's given you and, and, and make... There it is again. Take the limits off of God. I have, how do you put a limit on an all-powerful, omnipotent being? Most of it. Somebody can take the hand you've been dealt and, and win with it. So I'd encourage it. Let that somebody to be you. You know, I, I, I love that. And one of the things that I think that a lot of people do is, is you kind of disqualify yourself by discouraging yourself. You just wake up like the other night, you know. I, I, I think that was the important, uh, <clears throat> those were the important words in that sentence. I think, yeah. Boy, we got a pooling of uh, opinions here rather than the word of God. And apparently it's of the opinion, no, you can put limits on God. Yeah, I think I've heard just about enough of that. You kind of get the idea, you know, blind leading the blind, they both end up in a pit. That's, I think that's in the Bible somewhere, if you know what I mean. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, kind of an extended Troy Grambling update to kind of show you how, how do you narsajit uh, a biblical text regarding 
you know, the Christmas story. Well, don't worry. Troy Grambling will explain that to us in one easy step. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book, Every Day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you can be casual at work. And they're always having that 25-cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole every day is Friday thing and have made some not-so-nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, but Saturday is so much better. With every day being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy! for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. 
Warning, uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your favorite television preaching personalities. And that, again, would be a good thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. And a reminder, yes, we have uh, fired up our bake sale for the holidays. If you don't have your Pirate Christian Radio Christmas bulb or or some of the jewelry that my mother-in-law has made to help support the uh, radio station, go to fightingforthefaith.com and click on the bake sale link on the very top of the page and you can... uh, Get yourself uh, some pirate Christian T-shirts or things like that. And uh, and all the proceeds go to help support uh, the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. Moving along. Yep, time for a Troy Grambling update. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare I bought a lovely bunch of coconuts There they are standing in a row Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts Every ball you throw will make me rich there stands me wife, the idol of me life, singing roly bell a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roly bell a ball a penny a pitch. Singing roly bell a ball a penny a pitch. Roly bell a ball, roly bell a ball, singing roly bell a ball a penny a pitch. That's right, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. That's our. Uh, <laughs> We're going to use that for Troy Grambling updates and uh, use it for other uh, uh, people as well. But I, fit, I kind of whoever it fits, we'll, we'll use it for. Now, what we're going to be listening to, we're going to be listening to uh, the first sermon in the series entitled "The Nightmare Before Christmas," and uh, this is an example of narcissistic eisegesis, and uh, from a guy who is a multi-site megachurch pastor. Why? I have no idea. I don't why, understand why anybody would want to listen to any of this nonsense and uh, and call this Christian preaching or teaching. But uh, here's um, Troy Grambling to explain to us, you know, how how the holidays can be difficult for some people, you know, and that not to worry that the holidays were difficult also for for a, a, a person in the uh, in the Bible in the New Testament in particular. And you're thinking, what is he talking about? Well, l- listen in moved here in the year 2000 in the month of October. And so it wasn't that far from Christmas. We were only here just, you know, a month or so and everybody's getting ready for Christmas. And I was thinking about our first Christmas in South Florida. And the first thing I realized is it's hot at Christmas here. You know, the other thing that I, I realized is that, well, our, we were a long ways from our family. 
we didn't know anybody here. And it's hot um, at Christmas time here in South Florida. We didn't have any money because it had taken all the money that we had to get here. The kids were young. Uh, Tyler, our oldest, was around seven, going into third grade or something like that, I think. And then Carson, our middle, was going into kindergarten. And Bailey was just a baby. I mean, she's only a few months old. She's 14 now. Anybody else got a teenage daughter? <sighs> yeah, but... Uh, and, and so, you know, they, they were young, so they're at that age where they like gifts. And, of course, we didn't have a whole lot of resources. And, man, it was so hot here. And we, you ever had your extended family where you just think they're all going crazy? You know, just all kinds of issues. And here's what I remember. I remember that first Christmas here just feeling lonely. And I, I, I want you to look at this uh, phrase right here because I think this is the greatest nightmare that we have during the holiday season. I I believe the nightmare we fear the most is what? Is being lonely, especially during Christmas, especially during the holiday season when everybody's hanging out with other people. I mean, you don't want to have the, be the Grinch, but you kind of have those nightmarish emotions. You go to work and everybody's talking about decorating and it's just like, that's the last thing on my mind. Why well, decorate? There's nobody to see them anyways. Or people talk about where they're going to go during the holidays. And then it makes you angry because you don't have any plans at all. Or maybe um, they talk about the mall shopping. Now, it's been a long time since I've been to the Sawgrass Mills Mall. I went last week. It is bigger than the city I grew up in. They just keep building and it is full of people. There are no parking spots. Now, I'm telling you, it, it, it's, it's crazy. It's so easy during the holiday season, if we're not careful, to have that, that Grinch nightmarish spirit. Mm, yeah, boy. Oh, yeah, this is definitely you know, something that is just a bane of humanity, I'm sure. Can we talk about like a re- a real problem, like you know, real sins here? I'm not a big Hallmark Channel TV movie guy, but the Hallmark Channel or the Hallmark Movie Channel, beginning October the 31st, has been showing Christmas movies 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, it is movie after movie after movie, and they all begin the same way. They all begin with a nightmare. And it doesn't matter what movie it is, they all have the nightmare. The other thing they have in common is they all have the same actors. I don't know if you've watched it. It's like they went to New York for a week and shot 10 movies. And, and it kind of freaks you out a little bit because, you know, there's in one movie, this guy's the bad guy and this lady's like the bad lady, you know. And then you watch another movie and now they're the good people. But you can't cheer for them because they've already been the bad guy in your mind. But one of these, the thing that these movies all have in common is they all begin with a nightmare. And maybe some of us can identify. I think it's why they're so popular. Sometimes those movies begin with the nightmare of of loss, a lost family member. This is the first Christmas that you're having to spend with uh, the absence of somebody you really care about. Or maybe it's a lost job. Sometimes the nightmare is illness. And something about illness Especially if it's a... And sometimes the nightmare is a non-biblical sermon, you know, know, where the pastor isn't actually doing his job and opening up God's Word and preaching it and rightly handling it. Talk about a nightmare before Christmas. 
a severe kind of illness. You know, I've had uh, fusion surgery on my neck. I've had surgery on my back. I've had a couple of stents put in my heart. I mean, I've had a whole bunch of different things happen. I had cephalitis. One thing about being ill is no matter how much somebody wants to help you or encourage you or be there for you, the truth is it's, it's your x-ray. And you're the one that has to deal with that prognosis. And you can be surrounded by a whole lot of people and when you're ill, still feel alone. Sometimes the nightmare is unmet expectations. You know what we call it, don't you? We call it midlife crisis. It's when where you thought you would be at this age is not where you are. And all of a sudden, the money you thought you'd have or the business you thought you would have started or the marriage you thought you would have or at least, you know, the relationship you thought you would have had by now. I mean, what is this? This is kind of like Terry Savelle Foy's uh, sermon. I mean, what is a sermon about this? You, you don't have. And in these movies and in our lives, sometimes that's what becomes a nightmare. Sometimes it's being overwhelmed. A lot of times these movies start with single parents and they got school and they got the kids and then now they got to decorate the tree and they got to go shopping. Sometimes the nightmare is being ignored or forgotten, overlooked. No matter where you go, you go to work and you're just kind of ignored. And to show you my age, I remember a television show that used to come on. It's called Cheers. And during the song, one of the lines I remember was, everybody knows your name. And it's quite nightmarish when nobody knows your name. And no matter where you go, you seem to be uh, ignored. Uh, sometimes it's failure. You fail at a relationship or you fail at a job. You watch everybody else holding hands, wearing their little Christmas hats, you know, the mall, ho, 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 Merry Christmas. And then you're there all by yourself because you failed. Those can be horrible nightmares. And I think that's why those movies are so popular because I think a lot of us have those things in common with them. It's easy, um, if you're not careful, to find yourself in one of those nightmarish situations or to find yourself feeling some of those Grinch-type emotions. Did Jesus die on the cross for Grinch-like emotions? Uh, yeah, uh, what exactly, how are you going to address this problem from the word of God? I, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of at a loss here. But I got good news for you. You're, oh, you have good news that Jesus died for our sins? The first one to feel nightmarish. Oh, that's the good news. I'm not the first to feel nightmarish. The sermon is definitely nightmarish. And not only are you not the first one, the Bible actually speaks to it, which is good news. Because the, the Bible speaks to this? The Bible has a whole lot of answers, and it can actually give us some insight into how do you deal with the nightmare before Christmas. The <laughs> what? <laughs> how does the Bible help us deal with the nightmare before Christmas? How exactly does that happen again? Nightmare of all the loss and the illness and unmet expectations. And the Bible addresses the feelings of unmet expectations. Okay. Failure. And I want us to talk about somebody actually in the Christmas story. 
really somebody in the Christmas story had all these feelings of unmet expectations and stuff, huh? Now, a lot of people talk about the innkeeper because there was no room or maybe King Herod because he was, well, he was quite evil. Yeah. Or maybe the shepherds out in the middle of nowhere, the angels showed up and said, I got good news of great joy for all people. Or maybe the wise men who traveled for such a far distance looking for a king went to a palace but ended up in a manger. Or maybe Mary, she gave birth to the Messiah. I want us to look at who often gets overlooked. Okay. Yeah. See, the reason, it's the reason he's describing him as somebody who gets overlooked is because... Well, the whole setup here was, you know, are you feeling lonely during the holidays and suffering from unmet expectations? You know, I mean, is this like group therapy being conducted by a man who is not licensed to be doing these things? I want us to look at who was uh, Jesus' earthly father. I I want us to look at the life of Joseph because I think it gives us some insight into how you and I can actually deal with the nightmares we face before Christmas. Let's. Ah, it just just gets so bizarre. Why is anybody who calls himself a Christian listening to this man? How is it possible that he has a megachurch? This is ridiculous. This is utter absurdity. So Joseph's story is going to help us because he too experienced a nightmare before Christmas. Oh in Matthew chapter 1. Now remember, in Luke, you have the story of Christmas from the perspective of Jesus, uh, excuse me, Mary. And in Matthew, you have the Christmas story from the perspective of Joseph. Look at what it says. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been, what's this word? Yeah, betrothed to who? Joseph. Now what does this word mean? Some translations say engaged. That's really a poor translation because it was much more than... <laughs> really? You know Greek? Yeah, poor translation. To say betrothed or engaged is just a weak translation. Really? Okay. I did not know that uh, he knew Greek and could, you know, give us a better sense of what that word means. What's the Greek word for that, Troy? The way you and I would think of an engagement. Here's the way relationships went down in this time period. His mom and dad were like, you know what? Our child needs to get married. So they would go looking. They would find somebody and they would pay the dowry. They'd pay the price to the family of the bride. And the man and the woman would be betrothed. They would be committed to one another. You could actually refer to them. And the Bible does in a few verses down as being married. They were, and the only way to get out of it was uh, by divorce. So they were married in every way. They were committed in every way, except for the fact that they weren't sexually intimate. Marriage without sex. I don't know how that would go over in today's standards, but that's exactly what's going on here. They lived in different homes and it would last for about a year. And at the end of a year, the groom's family would go to the bride's home and they would have this procession of people back to the, to the groom's home, and then they would consummate the marriage, and they would then live together from that time forward. It was actually a, a, around a year's long to determine the purity of the bride, because if she didn't get pregnant in that year, then it was assumed that she was, that she was pure, that she had been faithful 
to the one that she was betrothed to. Well, when you look at the story of Joseph, let's look and see what happens, okay? So go back one more time. So he is betrothed. He is committed. They're not together intimately yet, but they are married. And let's see what happens. It says, before they came together, so that gives us in, you know, where they are in the time frame. She was found to be with what? That's a nightmare. Okay. It was the nightmare before Christmas. Oh, man, poor Joseph. He was suffering from unmet expectations and feelings of failure and stuff. Oh, see, Joseph can relate to you, too. You know, because he, you know, you are out there suffering from the nightmare before Christmas. Joseph had his own nightmare before Christmas, too. Mary went away to see her cousin Elizabeth for three months. And when she gets back, she's showing. And Joseph sees that she's showing. That is a nightmare. Joseph's got this like incredible time in his life. He's found his bride. He has committed to her. She is committed to him. They are getting close to the time to where they will come together and consummate with sexual intimacy, that commitment to one another. She goes away to see her cousin who gave birth to John the Baptist. And when she gets back, it's like, this is a nightmare. This is embarrassing for you. It's embarrassing for me. It's embarrassing for our families. I think Joseph can relate to your nightmare. Now, yours might be different. Joseph can relate to your nightmare, too. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's really what the point of that text is all about. It's about Joseph being able to relate. You know, you know, he, he totally gets your nightmare before Christmas. He had one, too, you know. Yours might be loss. Yours might be illness. Yours might be failure. Yours might be discouragement. But Joseph knows what it's like to find yourself one day. You just kind of wake up and all of a sudden you're in this nightmare. All of a sudden you're sitting at the Charlie Brown table eating spam. And you're like, is this, is this all that the future has for me? Well, how does Joseph <laughs> So Joseph was at the Charlie Brown table eating spam. Oh, poor guy. Oh, on to this. Let's look because here's, we're going to learn something. All right. And her husband, Joseph being a just man. So remember the verse before this, can we go back to verse 18? So we can all kind of stay on context here. So he's trying to exegete here, trying really hard. This is actually an exotic form of narcissistic eisegesis. This is psycho Jesus psychological analysis of reading yourself into a biblical text. I, I think you get the point. When a sermon starts off like this, there's like no way to land on your feet. Because ultimately, who's he preaching about? He's really not preaching about Jesus or about Mary or, you know, or, you know, or the virgin birth per se. No, what he's doing is trying to psychologically get into the head of Joseph to show you, oh, look, this guy can totally relate uh, he had a nightmare before Christmas, just like you're having a nightmare before Christmas. Isn't it great that we can all just commiserate and that God puts these stories in there so that we, we can feel like we're, we're understood or, you know, some nonsense like that. Again, this is not exegesis. This is psycho-Jesus, which is a form of narcissistic eisegesis. All right. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, 
You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with a good sermon from Martin Lloyd-Jones on the wrath of God, which I think is kind of misnamed. But yeah, just compare that sermon that you're going to hear to what you have just been listening to. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey! Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end the week off with a good Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon. But we got to do this right. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust website, mljtrust.org. We'll be listening to the sermon entitled The Wrath of God. Uh, And he's going to be preaching on Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 12. And like I've been saying, uh, I think this uh, sermon is mislabeled. It's labeled The Wrath of God, but 
uh, Dr. Jones spends quite a bit of time, you know, preaching Christ and explaining the message of Christ, the message of the kingdom, if you would. And it goes into great detail about what that's about and talks about that we should know nothing except for Christ and him crucified for our sins. And so the wrath of God is being preached about in light of the message of Christ which I think is brilliantly done. Just compare what you're hearing Dr. Jones do in this sermon to the samples of, well, bizarre preaching that we've uh, featured here this week, last week, over the past few years here at Fighting for the Faith, and I think you'll see the difference. So let me back off on the music, and without any further ado, here is uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones and his sermon entitled, The Wrath of God. Here we go. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles in the 8th chapter. And I'm going to read from verse 4 to verse 12. Now, we are looking at this because it is a very wonderful account and a very historical account of how the Christian faith, the Christian message in the Christian church first spread. We're living in days when we're witnessing the opposite. So it's good for us to be reminded of how it was that the Christian church, from a very small beginning, almost infinitesimally small, began to spread and to develop until it is now something that which is known in every country throughout the world. I'm calling attention to it in order that we may acquaint ourselves with these historical facts and events. I'm doing so particularly because there is such confusion today as to what Christianity is. And that's why, of course, so many are outside the Christian church and Christian people have become a remnant in this country and in many other countries. It is because of this confusion, which, alas, is not only existent outside the church, but unfortunately inside the church also. So I'm calling attention to this, because here we have authentic Christianity. If you really want to know what Christianity is, well, you've got to come back to this book. I mean the whole of the New Testament, this book of the Acts, perhaps in particular just at the present time. doesn't matter what people think about Christianity. We can all think and people have their opinions. They say, oh, I say it's this and that. But there's no value in that. There's no sanction. This is how it happened. This is the real thing. This is how the Christian church began. You see, all our troubles today are due to the fact that instead of going back to the beginning, we start from where we are. We start with an institution. Instead of going back and discovering what the church is, what the gospel is, what the real message is. Well, now we here we are told it very simply and very plainly. You see, this world of ours is the scene of a great spiritual conflict. It's described here. Saul was consenting unto his death, the death of Stephen. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Saul made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. What's that due to? That's due to the devil, to the power and the forces of evil. And that's what I mean when I say that this world of ours is the scene of a mighty spiritual conflict power of God and the forces of God, the power of the devil and of evil and of hell. And there's no adequate explanation 
of the state of this world tonight, but just that. And then we've looked at it as it's seen in the life of these people living in Samaria, almost worshipping a sorcerer. That's the world. It'll take any man at his own valuation. If he says he's a god, they'll accept him as one. We've lived in an age, remember, let us never forget this, in a century when almost worship was accorded to a man like Hitler and to others. And it's being done still. That's the kind of world in which we're living. The world doesn't change. It was like that in the first century. It's like that now. Devil possession and illness and sickness and pain and sorrow. That's our world. And here it is. And the great question is now, can anything be done for this? Well, the world, as we've seen, turns to its false remedies, its false prophets, these sorcerers. But they can't help us. They can delude us for the while, but they can't help us, they can't deliver us. There's only one thing that can. What we are told here is what that one thing is and how it does it. You see, we were looking last Sunday night, you remember. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. This is the Christian message. And we've seen it's a very definite word. It's a distinct word. It's a word that can be defined. It can be stated. You can know exactly what it is. A Christian's not a man who's seeking after truth. He's a man who's found it. He knows it. And he can tell you what it is. He can give you a reason for the hope that is in him. Here were ordinary people. Not the apostles even. Scattered abroad. Yet they went everywhere preaching the word. They knew exactly what they'd got to say. They'd got a message and they felt that they had to deliver it. Philip, we are told, goes down to Samaria and he proclaims it. He's a deacon in the church, an official man, so he proclaims it boldly and openly. Well, now we've seen that this is good news, the gospel. And if this doesn't come to us as good news, my dear friend, it isn't Christianity. This is the best good news that has ever come into the world. What is it? Well, we ended last Sunday night by putting it like this. It is about the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means this. That God has not abandoned this world. It looks at times as if he has, but he hasn't. His word tells us that. He permits things to happen in it. And he even does that for our good. Because, you see, when men refuse the offer of this gospel, and when they think they're too clever to believe it any longer, and when they're confident that they can manage themselves and their world without God, well, when men reject God's gospel, well, God just hands them over to themselves for a while. He's often done this before. And whenever he does that, what you always get is chaos. The chaos we've got today. The lawlessness, the godlessness, the violence, the drug taking, all the rest of it. That's man left to himself. But you see, this doesn't mean that God has finally abandoned this world. He hasn't. This whole message of the kingdom of God that Philip preached, and as I showed you that the Lord himself had preached, that all these disciples and apostles preach the kingdom of God. What is it? Well, it's a great message, and this is why it's such wonderful good news that we are not left to ourselves. If we were to be left to ourselves, finally, this world would become hell. It's approximating to it now, but it would become hell. But God is concerned. It's still his world. And he is setting up his own kingdom in this world. 
He's been doing it throughout the centuries. The church is an expression of it. He gathers people out individually, takes hold of them in the darkness and translates them into the kingdom of light and of his dear son, the kingdom of God. And he's going on with this until the kingdoms of this world shall have become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. That's our great message. So whatever the news may be, whatever the historians and the philosophers may say, we know that ultimately there shall be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The kingdom of God shall cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. Well now the question before us is this. How does God do this? And that's the thing to which I want to call your attention in particular this evening. How does he do this? How is this great plan and purpose of God carried out? What was the specific message that the ordinary Christians preached by gossiping wherever they were and that, Pete and that Philip preached in some area? Well, the answer is here quite simply. Philip went down into the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Or as it was put in the 12th verse, you notice, when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Now this is the thing that he preached. And this is, of course, the specific and the special message of the Christian faith. He preached Christ to them. He preached the name of Jesus Christ. Now what does this mean? Let's try to put ourselves back in this position. Let's try to imagine what it was exactly that Philip said to these people in this city of Samaria. Because then we shall know exactly what the Christian message is. This is what we are told. He preached Christ to them. He preached the name of Jesus Christ. Now, let me put it negatively like this. He didn't merely preach to them about God. He did preach about God. But he didn't leave it at that. Why not? Well, you see, these Samaritans already believed in God. The Jews believed in God. The Samaritans believed in God. To believe in God alone doesn't make us Christian. Now, many people seem to think that it does. People tell me I've always believed in God, as if that means they're Christians. But you can believe in God and not be a Christian. The Judas, the Mohammedan does, all sorts of people do. That doesn't make us Christian. No, no, we didn't waste time over that. The one thing that makes us Christian is our relationship to this Christ. Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the beginning and the end, the center of the Christian message. Now, you notice how the Apostle Paul put that in his own way in reminding the Corinthians in that first letter of what it, he, what it was he had first done when he went amongst them. He says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let me say it again. Christianity is not just a bit of idealism. It's not pacifism. It's not just a do-goodism. It's not a moral uplift. It's not thinking beautiful thoughts. It's Jesus Christ. The person. And if you're not clear about that, you haven't started even considering what the Christian message is. 
it is all in this blessed person. I determined not to know anything about him, said Jesus Christ. We preach Christ crucified. That's the message. Well, now then, the question before us is, what does this mean? People use his name, but they use it just to cover the kind of thing I've been indicating, a moral uplift, an idealism, or an objection to certain things that are being done in the world, but that isn't it. What do you think Philip said? He went and preached Christ to them. He told them about the kingdom of God and uh, the name of Jesus Christ. His name, the name stands for power, it stands for authority. It stands for everything that is done by this person. You remember how we are told in the third chapter about Peter and John going up into the temple to pray at the ninth hour, being the hour of prayer. And how they suddenly saw this poor fellow, born lame, over 40 years of age, sitting on the pavement outside the beautiful gate of the temple. And he looked up at them expecting to receive alms of them. But they hadn't got any. And do you remember what happened? They fixed their eyes on him and they looked at him and they said, Peter said, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And his feet and his ankle bones received strength. Peter held out his hand to him. He sprang up. And there he is going into the temple. Walking and leaping and praising God. What had done it? Well, the people thought that Peter and John had done it. And they went crowding around them. They were ready to worship them. The world is always ready to worship men. The world is always religious. And when it ceases to worship God, it begins to worship men. As it worshipped Simon Magus in Samaria. The world was ready many times to worship these various apostles. We are given the account of it in this book. Peter said, don't worship us. Don't think that we ourselves, by any godliness or power in ourselves, have done this thing. His name. Through faith in his name hath given this man this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Who is this? Well, he's told them he's the prince of life, the author of life. Well, now, this is the message. You see, that's what Philip preached about. Have you ever heard the Christian gospel? Do you really know what it is? I'm addressing those of you who especially who have rejected it as you think. And who say you're not a Christian and perhaps are proud of the fact that you're not a Christian. Do you know what you're rejecting? Do you know what this message about Christ, about Jesus Christ, really is? Well, let's go back, I said. Let's imagine that we're listening to Philip. What did he say? Well, he began talking about a person. Jesus. He said, listen, I've got something to say to you. I want to tell you, he said, about someone whose name was Jesus. And he began to tell them about him. What did he tell them? Well, he gave them, undoubtedly, a resume of what you and I can read in the pages of the four Gospels. He said, now, I want to tell you about a man called Jesus of Nazareth. He said, you may have heard about him already. Samaria wasn't so far away. And these things had become known. So he began to tell them about this extraordinary person, Jesus, who worked as a carpenter until the age of 30 and then began to go around preaching and teaching and doing various other things. I want to tell you about him, says Philip. And what did he tell them about him? Well, he said, I want to tell you about the way in which he was born. 
He said, you know, we've got a record and an account of this. There are people who knew his mother and she's told them, well, quite unexpectedly, she was suddenly visited by an archangel who greeted her and told her that she was highly favored amongst women because she was going to bear a child, a holy child, a holy thing, who was to inherit the kingdom of his father David and to reign in it without end forever and forever. She couldn't understand. But the angel explained to her. She said, how can I? I've never known a man. How can I bear a child? I'm not married. Impossible. And he said to her, the Holy Ghost will come upon you. And you are going to conceive of the Holy Ghost. She didn't understand. She marveled. She was amazed. But the archangel said, with God nothing shall be impossible. Don't talk of impossibilities. God is doing this to you. This is a part of God's great plan of bringing in his kingdom. And you are to have this great honor of bearing the Son of God in your womb and giving birth to him. This is the part of the message. It's all here in the gospel. And then you see, he went on to tell them about how this child grew. He was an amazing child. There was something always unusual about him. They went up when he was 12 years of age up to Jerusalem on a feast occasion and they finished their business and were going home and they assumed that he was in the company. Now suddenly having traveled about two days they looked for him and couldn't find him. So uh, they were perturbed and they went rushing back and when they got back to Jerusalem they found him in the temple talking and discussing with the doctors of the law and able to refute them and confute them and confound them with his learning and his knowledge. A boy of 12. But then he went back and just went on with his work as a carpenter until he was 30 and then he suddenly began to preach and to teach. He went to John the Baptist and asked him to baptize him and John said, you ought to be baptizing me. No, he said, you baptize me. Thus it behoves us to fulfill all righteousness. And as he was coming up out of the water, the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove descended upon him. And there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And he began to teach. And it was astonishing. He'd never had any training, but he spoke with authority. Everybody recognized it. The people listening to him said, This man speaketh with authority, not as the Pharisees and scribes. Here was one, said Philip, you know, he confounded the authorities, all these great and learned doctors of the law. He had an understanding which none of them possessed and they couldn't, how is this man learning this? They had never having learned. They could not understand it and yet they couldn't answer him. And he expounded the law of God and spoke about the coming kingdom of God. He uttered parables, he told stories. He said the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like this and it's like that. And he spoke as one with authority. And everybody listened to him. In addition to that, he worked extraordinary miracles. The blind received their sight, the lame began to walk. The deaf were made to hear, the lepers were cleansed, and he could even raise the dead. Now, these are historical events. They caused trouble, they caused annoyance. People were opposed to him because of this. Nevertheless, he did all these things. But, said Philip, what I really want to tell you is this. Here is this amazing teacher. 
Here is this man with this extraordinary power who can silence the wind and calm the raging sea. One who seems to have all power and all authority. Yet, he was arrested and he was tried. He didn't answer. He took it all without complaint. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. They condemned him and they nailed him to a tree. And in apparent utter weakness, he just died. People watching him said, look here, you said you were the son of God. You said you could save others. Why don't you save yourself? If you're the son of God, come down from that tree. Give us proof that you're son of God. He didn't. He died in a very short time. The soldiers looking on were amazed. Crucifixion was a very slow form of death. And the result was that generally when they crucified men, they used to put them to death after a certain time to relieve them of their terrible suffering. But when they went to look at this person who was crucified between two thieves, they were amazed to find that he was already dead. And they buried him in a grave. And they thought that that was the end. The authorities were very pleased. But you know, said Philip, it wasn't the end. And that's why I'm here, and that's when I'm speaking to you. It wasn't the end. Some of our people went, those who'd been following, went to see the grave the morning of the third day, and the stone had been removed. And they looked in, and he wasn't there. He disappeared out of the grave. What was this? Oh, he'd risen out of it, said Philip. Because afterwards, he appeared and he showed himself to some of these men whom I've been living with and working with. We call them apostles, said Philip. He revealed themselves. They were astonished. They couldn't believe it. When men called Thomas amongst them said, I won't believe this unless I actually put my finger into the imprint of the nails and thrust my fist into his side. I won't believe it. And then he had to see it and he fell at his feet and said, my Lord and my God. Well, said Philip, I want to tell you about this one. I want to tell you about this Jesus of Nazareth. Because can't you see, said Philip, there's only one explanation of this person, and that is that he is the Son of God. No one before has risen from the dead. There have been cases of resuscitation. He did it himself. He did it to a friend of his called Lazarus. He did it to the son of a poor widow in a place called Nain. He'd got this power. That was resuscitation. Here is one who was risen from the dead. This is resurrection. Now, said Philip, I want to tell you about this person. Because this proves that he is the son of God. Now, this was apostolic preaching. They preached Jesus and the resurrection. Now, it's just perfectly clear from all the records they would never have preached at all were it not for the resurrection. They would have come to the conclusion that this Jesus, after all, was only a teacher like everybody else. He had claimed that he was more than that. He had said, the Father and I are one, and he'd given this great demonstration of power. But they would have said, oh, well, of course, we thought that he was going to be the deliverer, but he wasn't. He died in cru and was crucified in utter weakness, and that was the end. We were wrong. He was only a man after all. You know, the resurrection finally proved that he was the Son of God. I want to tell you about him, said Philip. Why? Why is he so important? Why did he preach Christ to them? Why did he preach Jesus Christ? Well, you see, the answer is this. 
if this is the Son of God, as Philip said he was. The question is, why did he come into this world? Why was he born of a virgin? Why did he rise from the dead? Why did the Son of God ever come into this world? Here's the crucial question. Well, of course, he's answered the question himself. He said, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. He said, the Son of Man is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister, to give his life a ransom for many. Kept on saying this. But now here's the question. What does it mean to save? You know, the word here says he preached Christ. And that is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word, which was Messiah. What's this? Well, you see, if you read your Old Testament, this is something that you'll find running right through the whole of your Old Testament. God gave a promise away back right at the beginning that he was going to do something about the deliverance of this world. He gave a promise. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. The Old Testament is a book of promise. God gave a promise to Abraham. He repeated it to Isaac. He repeated it to Jacob. He repeated it to Moses. He repeated it to David. You get it being thundered forth by all that great succession of prophets. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Why? Well, a deliverer, a Messiah, a Christ is going to come. God is going to send the deliverer. This is the message. The Christ, the deliverer, the Savior. Now, the Jews were all looking forward to this, and so were the Samaritans. If you like to read when you go home tonight the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, you'll find the record of a conversation between the Lord Jesus Christ and a woman of Samaria. And there you'll find very clearly that she and all Samaritans were looking forward to a deliverer. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. These Samaritans, as I've explained on a previous Sunday evening, were very muddled, they were very confused, they were very ignorant. But there was one thing they'd held on to, the promise of a coming deliverer. There was someone to come who was going to deliver the world from its terrible predicament. And they were waiting for him. Now that's the meaning of to save. And this is the great theme of the Christian gospel. Son of man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Or take the way the author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts it. He says here, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, this Jesus. He began to preach a message of salvation. At the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. This is the message. It's all about this salvation. But what is salvation? What's it mean? Now, this is the thing that Philip had to explain to these people in Samaria. It's all very well to say that God's Son has come into this world, but why has he come? What has he come for? Well, he says himself he's come to seek and to save. But says somebody, uh, what does it mean? Do I need to be saved? What is it to be saved? What is salvation? What's it all about? Now, here's the thing, you see, that the world isn't considering today. Here, unfortunately, is the thing even the church isn't considering. Uh, Christianity's just become, well, I must say it again, a protest against war and bombs and apartheid 
And you'd think that that's the whole of it, something political, but it isn't. It's salvation. What is salvation? Great salvation. Well, Philip explained it to them. He said, have you ever realized your need and your true state and condition? Do you realize, said Philip, that you're all under the wrath of God? Because of your rebellion against him. Because you've broken his holy laws. Why are you as you are? Why is your world as it is? The answer is that you're at enmity with God. And God's wrath is upon you. Now this was what they all preached. Paul says to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, for the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men is already revealed from him. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. My dear friends, you don't begin to understand this world in which we are living. You don't begin to understand your own experience of misery and wretchedness until you realize that God, instead of loving you and smiling upon you and showering his blessings upon you, has put his wrath upon you. The world tonight is just a manifestation of the wrath of God. And as I said just now, a part of the manifestation of that wrath is that God just leaves us to ourselves. God hates sin. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And he made us for himself. And when we rebel against him, he will punish us. He said so. He came down and said so to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said so ever since. He's given us a law which brings this home to us and he tells us exactly how he hates it. We are all, every one of us, under the wrath of God. Now, you may not like that, but that's not the question. That is the position. God is displeased with you. And did you know this, my friend? If you die like that, you'll go on to eternal misery. That's the punishment of sin. The wages of sin is death. Spiritual death, separation from God, physical death. And beyond it, misery. Without interlude, without any relief. I'm not saying this, the Son of God said it. It's he who spoke about divies in hell. It is he who spoke of the place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. What do you know about these things? You say you don't believe in hell. On what grounds don't you believe in hell? What do we know about life after death? We know nothing except what we are told here. And this is what he taught. And this is what Philip taught. So you see, we are as we are. And there is that terrible prospect. Because we are living a life without God, we've defied him, we've stood up to him, we've deliberately flouted his laws, we've spat upon all that he regards as sacred and holy, and the wrath of God is upon us, and we need to be delivered from it. And not only that, by our rebellion and the breaking of God's law, we've put ourselves under the dominion of the devil of sin 
and of evil. I needn't keep you. I've expounded that before. Look at these wretched people in Samaria. I can imagine and I can hear Philip saying to them, why do you believe in this sorcerer? Why are some of your people devil-possessed? Why is there this misery, this unhappiness, this wretchedness, this heartbreak? What's the cause of it? He said, it's because you're the slaves of sin. You're the slaves of the devil. I know, said Philip. You say, you know, men have always said, I could give that up whenever I like. Well, then the answer is, why don't you do it? I've heard men saying, I can give up this, I can give up that. Why don't they do it? When they're made wretched themselves, when they make others wretched. If you can, why don't you? If you can stop sinning, why don't you stop sinning? You can't help it. Why? Because you're a slave of sin and a slave of the devil. That's the teaching of the whole of the Old Testament. It was the teaching that Philip gave to these people. He says this is what salvation means, that you need to be delivered out of all this, delivered from being under the wrath of God, delivered from hell. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Eternal punishment. And everlastingly under the thraldom and the tyranny of evil and sin and lust and passion and foulness and all that is wrong. That's what it means. Very well. Listen, said Philip. I want to tell you about this Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. I've got good news to give you, said Philip. You're helpless in the grip of sin. You can't shake it off. You can't deliver yourselves. You can't do anything about putting yourself right with God. You've tried many of you, but you can't do it. We all fail. I fail, says Philip. We're all failures. I've come to tell you that God is saving us himself, and he's done so in the person of this Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus, he says, is the Christ, the deliverer, the promised Messiah. How does he say? And then Philip went on to tell them. He said, listen. I've told you the facts about his life. I now want to explain to you, said Philip, the meaning of those facts. How does he save us? Well, the first thing is his very coming into this world is a part of this great salvation. We are not saved by a word from heaven. A word from heaven was enough to create the universe. It isn't enough to save us. The Son of God had to come into the world before we could be saved. That's the meaning of the Incarnation. And you see, in coming into the world at all, he's already starting the process of delivering us, because what does it mean? Well, the Apostle Paul puts it later in these terms. He said, he was made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. In other words, it's this. He came into the world in order to identify himself with us. He is the eternal Son of God, but we are men and women, we are flesh and blood. We are born of women. And in order to save us, he had to identify himself with us. As Son of God in his glory, he couldn't save us. Because we are human, flesh and blood. So he came down. He laid aside all the signs of his eternal glory. He emptied himself of all that. He humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. 
And he was born as that helpless babe. What was he doing? He was taking our nature upon himself. He was standing by our side. And he went on doing it. That's why, as I told you just now, he went and got baptized by John the Baptist. John said, you don't need to be baptized. You've never broken any law. You've never done any wrong. You don't need to be baptized. He said, I do. I must. I can't fulfill all righteousness without doing it. You see, he not only came down and became a man like us. He's identified himself with us in our sin and in our unworthiness. He's insisted upon being baptized, which was a confession of sin, repentance, though he had never sinned at all. That's what he did, said Philip. But wait a minute. That doesn't save us either. He then went on to live a perfect life. He rendered a perfect obedience to God and to God's law. He never sinned. He never did any wrong. Oh, he was tempted. He was tempted in all points like as we are. He never sinned. The devil brought out all his reserves against him. He tempted him in the most devilish manner that even the devil could produce. He didn't fall. He resisted all temptation. He rendered a perfect obedience to God's holy law in every jot and tittle and every detail. It was a perfect obedience. At the same time, he conquered the devil. He conquered all the forces of the devil and of hell and of evil. And on top of it all, he even conquered death and the grave. He couldn't be holden by death. He died. They took down the body. They buried it in the grave. They rolled a stone on the grave and sealed it and put soldiers to guard it. He burst asunder the bands of death. The last enemy that shall be conquered is death. He's conquered him. The last enemy. He has defeated every power that is against us. That is how he saves us. That is how he delivers us. But wait a minute. I can imagine certain people saying to Philip at this point, as there are probably many wanting to ask me the same question now. If you say that this Jesus is the Son of God, if he is this heavenly being who has come down on earth to dwell in order to save us, why did he have to die? I can understand he's living a perfect life. I see value in that. But why did he die? Why was he allowed to die? Why didn't he exert his great power and escape to heaven? All right, you're not the first who's thought of that. Some of his own closest followers and disciples felt he ought to do that and were urging him to do that. And he replied saying, if I wanted to, I could. I could command twelve legions of angels and I could be wafted to heaven. I could defeat these. Elijah went to heaven without dying, so could I. But you know, he says, I couldn't do my work if I did that. Your question has already been anticipated. You know the very center of the message that Philip preached was the death of Christ. Paul says, I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now he did that, though he knew that that message was a stumbling block to the Jews. 
There, to them, the idea that if the Messiah, the Deliverer, dies a death of weakness upon a cross was scandalous. It was ridiculous. And, of course, to the sophisticated philosophical Greeks, this was the height of folly. That just a carpenter in a little land like Palestine, who'd never been to the schools and the academies, that he saves, and especially by dying on a cross. It is utter foolishness. Rubbish. Ridiculous. Nevertheless, says Paul, we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto us which are saved, Christ the power of God, and Christ the wisdom of God. It isn't even by his perfect life that he saves us. That's a part of it. But you know, there was something still essential. The death. And that is why he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. That is why he went deliberately to his death. That's why he said that he had come in order to go to that hour. Why is the death of Christ essential to your salvation and mine? And here is the answer. It is because of the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God. There was no other way. God had already said that the soul that sinneth it shall die. He said that sin must be punished. You know, shall I say it with reverence, God has no choice in this matter. Because God is light and because God is justice and holiness and righteousness and truth, he must hate sin. He must punish sin. And he says he will. And he's done so. And will continue to do so. God can't wink at sin. You and I with our loose, flabby, sentimental ideas of love, we think that love is unrighteous, that it just pretends it doesn't sin. We don't believe in discipline, do we? And that's why you've got your lightning strikes and your disorder and your lack of uh, faithfulness in your trades union and you've got no discipline in your schools or in your homes and the whole of life has become chaos. Because we have no conception of a holy love and a righteous and a just love. But God is holy and is righteous. And God can't pretend that he hasn't seen sin. And God can't just brush it under the carpet. It's impossible. God's nature demands punishment for sin. God must remain eternally consistent with himself. And God has taught us this throughout the centuries. He taught the Samaritans this. They've got the five books of Moses. He taught the Jews this. You read there about burnt offerings and sacrifices. You read there that God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle. And they were to offer a lamb morning and evening. There were other offerings. Beasts were to be taken. They were to put their hands on their heads. And then to slay them, take the blood, offer it to God. What's the meaning of all this? Is this all nonsense? No, no. This is God's revelation. This is God's saying. There is no remission of sins without shedding of blood. Justice must be revealed and manifested. Sin must be punished. There is no forgiveness without righteousness. God would not be God if he didn't say that. This is all my feeble way of what the Apostle Paul puts in these magnificent words. Being justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. My dear friend, the greatest problem that has ever confronted God is the problem of forgiving a single sinner. God's law must be honored. God's nature must be vindicated. Sin must be punished. Well, very well, if sin must be punished and the punishment of sin is death, how can any one of us ever be forgiven? How can any one of us ever be saved? And now I see Philip applying his message. How are you to be saved? You're all mortal beings, you're going to die. It's appointed unto all men once to die and after death to judgment. And you've got to stand before God. And you're sinners, how can you? The wrath of God is on you. The law of God condemns you. Is there any hope? God's law must be vindicated. How can it happen? God must punish sin. How can you be forgiven? Listen, said Philip. That's why I've come amongst you. I've got the most amazing good news to give you. God has already punished your sin. And because he's punished it, he's offering you free pardon and forgiveness. Do you know that this Jesus is God's lamb? You've heard of John the Baptist, he said. That fiery prophet in the wilderness. Do you remember what he said one day as he was standing with two of his disciples by his side? They'd been hanging on the words of John. They were ready to worship him. And he'd had to rebuke them and said, I'm not the Christ. Not fit to undo the legend of your shoes. Only a little bit of a forerunner. No, no, he said. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Here he is. Here's the fulfillment of all the prophecies. Here is the fulfillment of all the types, all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and all the lambs. These are but shadows, adumbrations, foretellings. Here is God's own lamb and he's God's own son. He sent him into the world to take away your sins. He's laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has vindicated his honor, his justice, his righteousness. He's punished sin. That's why Christ died. The wrath of God came upon him and it literally broke his heart. And that's why he died so much sooner than they thought he would. It was the agony of bearing the punishment of your sins and mine. It killed him. He died that we might be forgiven. He has borne our sins in his own body on the tree. The punishment has been meted out. God has vindicated his own justice and his own righteousness. He has dealt with sin as he said he would deal with sin. But because he has dealt with it in the person of his only begotten beloved son, he offers you free pardon and forgiveness. You have but to believe this, said Philip, to these Samaritans, and you're immediately forgiven. This is what I want to tell you. Give up trying to put yourselves right. You'll never do it. You can fast and sweat and pray. You can go into a monastery like Martin Luther went and be a monk. 
You'll never get assurance of forgiveness of sins. You'll never be able to reconcile yourselves with God. Listen, says Philip, this is amazing good news. That's why I've come down from Jerusalem to tell you, and I want you to listen. There is only one hope for you, and that is that you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God, and that he came into the world to save sinners, that he came into the world to save you. That you realize you're lost, that you confess it to God, which means repentance. That you see your lost estate, your helplessness. You see the terrible plight you're in. And you see the jaws of hell, as it were, waiting and open to receive you. And you can do nothing. But I want you to know that God offers free pardon and forgiveness. To anyone who acknowledges this sin and helplessness and who believes the message concerning his own pure son. See, this is the thing that not only sent Philip to Samaria, this is the thing that thrilled the great heart of that apostle Paul. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Well, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's the man who lives by faith who's justified. It is the man who believes the message concerning Jesus Christ, Son of God, coming into the world to die for our sins and to reconcile us unto God. Listen, says Paul again, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though Christ did beseech you by us, we beseech you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. For God was in and through Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Oh, believe in this Christ. The moment you do so, your sins are forgiven. Not only that, this perfect obedience of his will be put to your credit, to your account. The scripture puts that, and the hymn writers are so fond of that, in terms of being clothed with a robe of righteousness. And you are unable to say, Jesus, Thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in this arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. Or with another, the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Philip. Preach Christ. Preach Jesus Christ. The good news. God bringing in his kingdom. Rescuing us from the world and the flesh and the devil and hell. By punishing his own dearly beloved son. For our sin. And offering us free pardon and forgiveness. Clothed with his righteousness divine. And makes us his own children. Because we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God.
and joint heirs with Christ. The people listening in some area, they believed. And the result was, there was great joy in that city. Is there joy in your heart? Is there joy in your heart tonight? In this world as it is. There was great joy in that city because they believed this message. Have you got that joy? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Have you lost the fear of the terror of law and of God? And of death and the grave and the judgment and of hell? Has it gone? Are you rejoicing in Christ Jesus? That is what it means to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.